The Bible presents a philosophy of history. And interestingly, ever since the early 1500s, students of the Word of God have been trying to give an explanation of the Bible's philosophy of history. And those explanations have given birth to different systems of theology. And one of the predominant systems of theology born as a result of that search is called covenant theology. Covenant theology began to develop in the countries of Switzerland and Germany in the Reformed churches. And it spread from there then to the Netherlands and then to England and then to Scotland. Uh, and most of that taking place in the 1500s, early 1600s as well. Covenant theology adopted the view that uh, in eternity past, God determined to govern the entire course of history on the basis of covenants. And that's why it's called covenant theology. And most of the covenant theologians believe that it consists of three basic covenants. One they call the covenant of redemption. And they claim that that was established between God the Father and his son Jesus Christ back in eternity past before man was even created. And that God, knowing ahead of time that mankind would fall away from him, God determined to provide redemption for what they called the elect human beings during the course of world history. And so the Father covenanted to grant the Son uh, to be the head and redeemer of the elect, and the Son in return covenanted with the Father to provide redemption for the elect by becoming incarnated in human flesh and dying a substitutionary death for them. According to covenant theology, the second covenant that God established for history was called the covenant of works. And that God established that covenant between himself and the triune God and the first man, Adam. And they established that with Adam between the time of creation and the fall of man. In this covenant, God required perfect obedience on the part of Adam that Adam would subject his will to the will of God. And in that covenant, God promised eternal life to Adam and his descendants in return for Adam's perfect obedience. But since God appointed to be the representative head of the human race, if he were to disobey God, he and his descendants would be penalized with death, including physical, spiritual, and eternal death. And then, of course, the scriptures indicate Adam didn't obey God, he rebelled against God, so the fall of man took place. And so in light of that, according to covenant theology, God established what was called the covenant of grace because Adam broke the covenant of works. And uh, in fact, one covenant theologian defines the covenant of grace as, quote, that gracious agreement between the offended God and the offending but elect sinner in which God promises salvation through faith in Christ, and the sinner accepts this believingly, promising a life of faith and obedience. So in light of this, covenant theology says the first party of the covenant of grace is God, God himself. And so covenant theologians claim that the second party is the sinner, or some say it is, is the elect. Others say the elect sinner in Christ or believers and their seed. 
And so the, the final covenant, in essence, according to their theology, that God established for the three covenant system that will govern all of history is the covenant of grace. And they believe that once that covenant of grace was established, it continues on uninterruptedly throughout all the rest of world history. And all the biblical covenants that are named in the Bible, like the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic law covenant, the new covenant, are simply further aspects of this overall covenant of grace throughout the whole span of world history. So this, in essence, is the concept of covenant theology, that God in eternity past determined he would govern the whole course of history based on these three covenants, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and then the covenant of grace, the covenant of grace. Now, and we don't have time to go into all the details of this, but we want to deal this morning in our first session with some of the problems that are involved with covenant theology. And there are a number of problems with them. And one of the problems is this, what their understanding is of the goal of history. From a covenant theology viewpoint, the goal of history is almost totally salvation, uh, salvation, salvation of individual human beings. Uh, they would say that the, the ultimate thing God's doing throughout the course of history is saving what they call the elect, saving the elect human beings. So that to their viewpoint, the ultimate purpose of history and the major thing that God's doing throughout the whole course of history, history is soteriological, dealing with salvation of sinful human beings. There's a problem with that. And that's the fact that that's too narrow of a concept of the ultimate purpose of God for history. Now, all of us would understand one of the major things God is doing during the course of history is saving sinful human beings. And that's one program he's operating, but that's only one program. He has another program for those who don't get saved. He has another program for rulers over nations. He has another program for nations. He has a pr another program for nature. And so whatever the ultimate purpose of history is, it must be broad enough to cover all these things that God's doing throughout the course of world history. And so that from a biblical viewpoint, the ultimate purpose of history is for God to glorify himself by demonstrating the fact that he alone is the sovereign God of the universe. From a biblical viewpoint, that's the ultimate purpose of world history. For God to glorify himself by demonstrating the fact that he alone is the sovereign God of the whole universe. And the reason God does that is by his demonstrating his sovereignty by carrying out all these different programs throughout the course of world history that uh, we just referred to rather briefly. So one of the problems with covenant theology is its understanding of the purpose of history is too limited. It's too narrow, too limited. Only one basic program God's doing, and that is salvation of what they would call the elect, salvation of the elect. Now there's another problem with covenant theology, and that has to do with distinctions that you find in the Bible. Distinctions that you find in the Bible. A covenant theology denies or weakens some of the distinctions in the Bible. They weaken or even deny some of the distinctions in the Bible. And the reason they do that, they say, well, these are just different phases of the same covenant of grace. All the distinctions in the Bible are simply different phases of this one overall covenant of grace that's been going on at least uh, since Abraham's time, they would say. Let me point out some of the distinctions that they deny. 
they claim that the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic law covenant are in essence the same covenant. That in essence the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic law covenant are in essence the same covenant because they're all part of this one overall covenant of grace. By contrast, Paul in Galatians chapter 3 points out there's a tremendous distinction between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic law covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was a covenant of promise. The Mosaic law covenant was a covenant of works. You had to obey 613 regulations of that law, none of which were contained in the Abrahamic covenant whatsoever. These were things added on centuries after the Abrahamic covenant was established with God. The Mosaic law added 613 regulations that were never part of the Abrahamic covenant. And yet they blurred that distinction, say, but all these covenants established during history are all part of this one overall covenant of grace, and so therefore we can't have major distinctions between them. Paul, also in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, drew some tremendous distinctions between uh, the Abrahamic covenant and, and the law covenant, but even more so, Paul drew distinctions in 2 Corinthians 3 between the new covenant and the Mosaic law covenant. Which, by the way, here's another distinction that covenant theology says, that in essence, the Mosaic Law Covenant and the New Covenant are in essence the same covenant. And they have to say that if all the biblical covenants are all part of this one overall covenant of grace. But you know, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul indicates through the New Covenant, you get life. The New Covenant brings spiritual life. But, by contrast, he points out, through the Mosaic Law Covenant, you get death. Paul calls the Mosaic Law Covenant a covenant of death, a covenant of death, because it inflicted the death penalty on people who broke some of the major regulations of the Mosaic Law Covenant. So he's saying that the, the New Covenant is a covenant of life, whereas the Mosaic Law Covenant is a covenant of condemnation and death are the terms that Paul uses for the Mosaic Law Covenant in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In addition, when you look at Jeremiah 31, where God is drawing a distinction between the Mosaic Law Covenant and the New Covenant he would establish in the future, this is what God said in Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, referring to the Mosaic Law Covenant, which covenant they broke. And they did break the Mosaic Law Covenant over and over and over again. But notice God very clearly is stating there the new covenant I'm going to establish in the future, which would be when, when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, the new covenant will not be the same as the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, which was the Mosaic Law Covenant. So God is clearly stating there, there's a tremendous distinction between the new covenant that would be established through the death of Christ on the one hand, and the Mosaic Law Covenant he gave to Israel when he brought them out of Egypt and they came to Mount Sinai. Covenant theology says, no, there's no big distinction between the new covenant and the Mosaic Law Covenant and they have to say that if these two biblical covenants are going to be all part of this one overall covenant of grace, covenant of grace. 
Grace doesn't give you death and condemnation. The law gave people death and condemnation. If they didn't obey all 613 of the rules of that law that God put upon the nation of Israel. So here again were some distinctions that covenant theology blurs. They have to do away with these distinctions in order for their one overall covenant of grace that's been going on at least since the time of Abraham right on through the rest of, of the course of world history. Then covenant theology denies the distinction between the nation of Israel and the church. It denies the distinction between the nation of Israel and the church. And what covenant theology believes and teaches is that the church, there's a form of the church that existed in Old Testament times. And basically, the nation of Israel was that form of the church that existed in, in Old Testament times. In fact, covenant theologians uh, give this definition for the church. It defines the church as the continuing covenanted community. And the continuing covenant is the grace, covenant of grace they talk about that started at least with Abraham and goes on throughout history, bringing salvation to people. And so they say that the church is the continuing covenanted community. And so they claim any people who were saved in Old Testament times were part of the church. And, but we're going to uh, point out here, the scriptures make it very clear, the church did not come into existence until Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus died, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven. In fact, uh, this is why Peter, in Acts uh, Talking about what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter later on in Acts chapter 11, verse 15, called Pentecost the beginning. You read Acts chapter 11, verse 15, when he went up and was interviewed by the other apostles there in Jerusalem, he said that when he went into the home of Cornelius and preached the gospel to Cornelius and his family, to this Gentile his family, that the Spirit of God was poured out upon them just as it was upon the Jews on the day of Pentecost, and he called the day of Pentecost the beginning. The Bible teaches that what builds the church is spirit baptism, and spirit baptism did not take place until the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You know, Paul in, in 1 Corinthians says that all of us as believers were baptized with the spirit into one body, the church, the body of the church. It's spirit baptism that gave birth to the church. And Jesus made it very clear the day of his ascension, the apostles were to stay right there in Jerusalem for several more days to receive the spirit in a sense that God had promised. And when those Jewish believers were gathered there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, all of a sudden the spirit of God descended upon them from heaven. The, the symbol was uh, tongues of fire coming down to their heads what were those tongues of fire? They were none of the Shekinah glory of God that appeared, remember, that appeared to Moses at the burning bush uh, and everything, that fire. The Shekinah glory of God. Every time that Shekinah glory of God fire appeared, it appeared again on the day that they dedicated the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then on the day that they dedicated the first temple of Jerusalem, that fire appeared, first at the tabernacle in the wilderness, then it appeared on the day they dedicated the first temple there in Jerusalem. It's the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness that always signified the unique presence of deity. And so the tongues of fire that came down upon the Jewish believers in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost 
was the Shekinah glory of God indicated for the first time in world history a person of the Godhead, deity, was coming to permanently indwell the bodies of believers there. That was the, the believers being baptized with the Spirit, the Spirit of God coming upon them. That didn't happen in Old Testament times. And Peter, when he went in and preached the gospel to the Cornelius and his family, that same thing happened to them as happened on the day of Pentecost. And that's why Peter, when he went up to report of what happened at Cornelius' home, report to the apostles there at Jerusalem, he told them what happened, and he said the same thing took place with these Gentiles that took place with, on us at the beginning. At the beginning of what? The beginning of the church. There was no church anywhere in the world in Old Testament times. There was no church until the day of Pentecost, after Jesus ascended to heaven, once his work of redemption was completed. And yet, covenant theology says the church has always been here, at least since the time of Abraham. And so they call all the believers in Old Testament, plus now New Testament believers, call the continuing covenanted community because all, as believers, we're all part of this one overall covenant throughout most of the course of history called the covenant of grace, the covenant of grace. And so when they, therefore, when they read the Bible, in the Old Testament, it talks about Israel. They say that's not literal Israel, that's the church. That Israel, in a sense, was a form of the church in Old Testament times. And so the church was already here, even before the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They deny the distinction between the nation of Israel on the one hand as the people of God and the church of Jesus Christ on the other hand. Since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God being poured out, coming to indwell permanently the physical bodies of born-again believers for the first time in world history of the day of Pentecost. That's when the church began. It was not here in Old Testament times. God has two totally separate programs for the nation of Israel on the one hand and the church on the other hand, and the church on the other hand. Then covenant theology denies the distinction between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel that the Apostle Paul defines in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. Did you ever consider the fact the Bible indicates there are two different gospels in the Bible? They're not the same message. They have two different contents, and they have two different commissions tied in with them whatsoever. Remember, uh, when John the Baptist appeared upon the world scene as the forerunner for the Lord Jesus, you read about this like in, in Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4, that what was his message to the people of Israel, John? Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he's saying is it hasn't taken place yet, but because the one is going to set up that future kingdom of God is already here, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. But God's not going to set up his future kingdom rule upon the earth until you people of Israel, the nation of Israel, repents of your rebellion against God and accepts Jesus Christ, his son, as your Messiah and your Savior. So John the Baptist's message to the Jews was repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then he baptized Jesus. And then right after Jesus was baptized, Jesus begins his public ministry. And you come to Matthew chapter 4, and, and Jesus, we're told, started going throughout the land of Israel preaching, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And just several verses after he began that, that is called the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. Interestingly, when you come to Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus gives his original commission to the 12 apostles, what he told them was this. You don't go to the Gentiles with this gospel. You don't go to the Gentiles with this message. You don't go to the Samaritans with this message. You go exclusively to the lost sheep of the house of Israel with this message. And as you go to them, you preach, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice that's a restrictive commission with this gospel. This gospel was not to go to the Gentiles. It was not to go to the Samaritans. It was to go exclusively to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why? Because Jesus was offering the future theocratic kingdom of God uh, to the nation of Israel. And the Bible reveals that future kingdom of God will not be established until the nation of Israel repents of its rebellion against God and accepts Jesus Christ as its Messiah and Savior. Why is it that Israel has to do that? not the Gentiles or Samaritans before the future kingdom of God will take place. The reason is because God originally appointed Israel to be the spiritual leader of the whole world. The spiritual leader of the whole world. When God brought the Jews out of their bondage from Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai. And God gives them the Mosaic Law. Notice what he says to them in uh, Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. One thing he says, Israel, you are to be unto me a holy nation. The word holy means divided. To be holy is to be divided from other persons and things. Divided in the sense that you're different, distinct, unique in contrast with other persons and things. You know, at Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, the descendants of, of Noah, several generations after Noah's time, rebelled against God. God told them right after the flood uh, be fruitful, multiply, populate the entire earth. In other words, don't stay together in one location, spread out upon the face of the earth. But several generations after that, Noah's descendants rebelled against God. We don't want to be separated from each other. Let's stay together and make a great name for ourselves. They were rebelling against God. And you know how God came down and he put a stop to that by confounding their language. Now new languages came into existence because of their rebellion. That forced them to scatter from each other because they couldn't understand each other. And now on the basis of their different languages, they began building distinct nations. But another interesting thing took place, and secular historians point this out. Around 2500 BC, right in that area of ancient Babel, there was a new religion that was invented by the Sumerians that were living there. And it was a new false religion in which they invented a mother goddess whom they called the Queen of Heaven and began to worship as the queen of heaven. And secular historians point out that archaeologists have uncovered clay tablets with inscribed on those clay tablets some of the uh, expressions of worship to the queen of heaven these pagan people, these Gentile people uh, gave. And they, they called her the, the queen of heaven. She's the one that will bring peace to the world. And wherever she looks, dead people are resurrected from the dead. Uh, sick people are healed of their illnesses. And secular historians point out that that false religion spread from ancient Babel uh, to the nations of the world. What's intriguing is, when you come to verse 10 of Genesis chapter 11, where God's describing all this that was going on, 
God quickly narrows down a line of descent to one man, Abram. Very end of chapter 11. The very next verse, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, God says to Abram, I will make a great nation of you. Great, not necessarily in size, but great in significance because of the unique plan and purpose God had for that nation and God carried out his purpose for history. And so, several generations after Abraham, his descendants go down into Egypt. God told him in Genesis 15, that's going to happen sometime after you're gone. They're going to be enslaved there, but then I'm going to bring them out of there and bring them to the promised land of Canaan. And so God brings them out. They come to Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19, and God says to them, you're to be me a holy nation. Again, holy means divided. What he's saying is, I'm raising you up to be a totally unique nation, divided in uniqueness from all these pagan Gentile nations who have rejected me as the true and the living God and have invented false gods and goddesses for them to worship. Israel, I intend you to be different from these pagan Gentile nations of the world in the sense that you are to worship me, the only true and living God forever throughout your existence. But then he said to them there at Mount Sinai, you're also to be for me a kingdom of priests. In other words, I am appointing you to be the spiritual leader of the whole world. I'm giving you the responsibility to be my witness to these pagan Gentile nations of the world. There's only one true and living God, the God that brought us out of our slavery from Egypt. And your gods are totally man-made and false. They're non-existent. In fact, in Isaiah 43, God said to the people of Israel, the Gentiles have eyes to see, but they're totally blinded to reality. They have ears to hear, but they're totally deaf to reality. The way in which they're deaf and blind to reality is they're not recognizing and worshiping the only true and living God who exists. They've made their false gods and goddesses. In light of that context, Isaiah 43, God says to Israel, you are to be my witnesses. I've ordained you. This is why I brought you in existence as a nation to be different from these pagan Gentile nations. You're to be my witnesses to these pagan Gentile nations to the effect there's only one true and living God. One true and living God. And God brought them in for that purpose, existence. And the prophetic scriptures indicate God will not crush Satan and then Satan's rule from the world system. And God set up his kingdom upon planet Earth, whereas Messiah will rule the world politically for the last 1,000 years. He will not do that until the nation of Israel, who is to be the spiritual leader of the whole world throughout the 1,000-year millennial reign of Messiah, is spiritually right with God. And that's why they have to repent before the kingdom will come. And that's why in the original commission Jesus gave to the apostles is, you don't go to the Gentiles with this message, the gospel of the kingdom. You don't go to the uh, Samaritans with this gospel of the kingdom. You go exclusively to the nation that has to be spiritually right before that kingdom will come. They must repent of their rebellion against me and accept me as their promised Messiah before the kingdom will come. So you apostles, you're to go exclusively to the people of Israel with this gospel of the kingdom. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The reason it was had because the Messiah who could establish it will set it up if you meet the spiritual requirement for that kingdom to come. And so he sent them out. Now notice, the gospel of the kingdom said nothing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
said nothing about it. It was totally repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And one of the ways we know that that was distinct from the gospel that Paul defines in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, I declare to you the gospel by which you are saved, that Christ died for our sins, was buried, resurrected again the third day. Doesn't even use the word kingdom in that gospel whatsoever. And to show you all the more that there was a distinction between the gospel of the kingdom that was to go only to Israel and the gospel that was to be proclaimed to all people after Christ died and rose from the dead, when you come to Matthew chapter 16, and this is after the apostles have been out for a period of time preaching the gospel of the kingdom to Israel, Jesus calls them together, and he says, Who do men say that I am? And they give the different responses. And then he says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter gave that great, uh, commi- that great uh, statement, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you look later on in Matthew chapter 16, we're told from that time Jesus began. That word began is so crucial. From that time, Jesus began to tell his apostles, I must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed and resurrected from the dead three days later. Notice that word began. This is the first time he told the apostles, I'm going to die, be resurrected from the dead. He never told them that before, and yet they've been out preaching the gospel of the kingdom, which means, therefore, the gospel of the kingdom they were preaching said nothing about his death, burial, and resurrection, because they hadn't even been told yet by Jesus, I'm going to die, be resurrected from the dead. And to show you all the more, the gospel they've been preaching didn't say a word about his death, burial, and resurrection. How did Peter react? When Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and be resurrected from the dead three days later, Peter said, not so, Lord, that'll never happen to you. With the gospel of the kingdom that Peter had already been preaching to the people of Israel, include the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he would never have reacted so strongly when Jesus said, I'm going to die. I'll be resurrected from the dead. They're two totally separate, distinct gospels, and with the gospel of the kingdom exclusively to Israel, nobody else. But after Jesus died and rose from the dead, what does he say in Mark 16? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Notice, not the gospel of the kingdom. Now you're to go with the gospel message, my death, my resurrection, and this is to go to everybody upon planet Earth, not just the people of Israel, but everybody. These are two totally distinct, clear gospels within, within the New Testament. Covenant theology totally denies that. And what they say is, because the main thing controlling uh, all of history, from God's viewpoint, at least from the time of Abraham, is salvation of individual human beings. And so they say it's that same covenant of grace, and therefore, since the whole thing God's doing throughout history is the salvation of human beings, then the gospel always has to be the same message throughout all the course of history, from Abraham's time at least right on up uh, to the end of world history. So they denied the distinction between these two gospels uh, in the New Testament. And uh, that's a very important distinction to see uh, within the Word of God. Now, uh, here's another aspect of covenant theology. Covenant theology teaches, therefore, that each biblical covenant, each biblical covenant is a continuation but newer phase of the overall covenant of grace. That each biblical covenant is a continuation in a newer phase 
of the overall covenant of grace that's been going on at least since the time of Abraham uh, throughout world history. And yet again, uh, Paul in Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 15, points out something that flies in the face of what they believe. Paul in Galatians 3.15 teaches, once a covenant is established, no new conditions may be added to it. He says this is even the understanding among human beings when you establish a covenant and you agree to it, you can't add new regulations or conditions to that covenant. That's the law of a covenant. Once it's established, you can't add new things to it. Well, covenant theology says, well, the covenant of grace was established back there, maybe with the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham, but later on, God adds some things to it with the Mosaic law as another covenant, because that's part of the overall covenant of grace. But that Mosaic law instituted over 600 new regulations that it hadn't been in the Abrahamic covenant. That violates the principle of covenant establishment that Paul defines in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. Once a covenant is established, you can't change its regulations. You can't add new things to it. Because if you do, it's not the same covenant anymore. And that's why when covenant theology says as well that, well, when the Mosaic law covenant was added, that's simply increasing more of the covenant of grace. And uh, later on, when uh, the new covenant is added, that's increasing more new things to the overall covenant of grace. That violates the law of covenant making in Galatians 3.15. Galatians 3.15. And so therefore, they're, they're blurring the distinction here between these covenants. And what they're saying is that each biblical covenant is simply a continuation and newer phase with newer uh, input, newer regulations, just a, a newer phase of this overall covenant of grace that's going on throughout the course of world history. So that they're teaching each biblical covenant is a continuation, newer phase of the covenant of grace, but Paul says that can't be. Because if you're going to add something new to what was already there, it's no longer the same covenant, no longer the same covenant whatsoever, Galatians 3.15. Now, here's another problem with covenant theology, and this is a major one. Covenant theology employs a double system of interpretation of the Bible. It employs, I would say, a twofold or a double system of interpretation of the Bible. This is very critical for you to understand. Now, they agree that the, the best method of interpreting the Bible is called the historical grammatical method. The historical grammatical method. And what it meant is, in order to properly understand a passage in the Bible, you must pay attention to history to see if there's any historic background that will shed light on what is being taught here, what is being taught here, say, in a covenant. And you ask that pay strict attention to grammar, tenses of verbs, voices of verbs, and uh, nouns and pronouns and all the rest, the correct method of interpreting the Bible, if you want to interpret it accurately, is the historical grammatical method. And covenant theology says yes. That, that is a standard method, and if you don't abide by that, you may end up with false teaching. But then they contradict themselves on that, 
because they say, yes, we're to use the historical grammatical method of interpreting the Bible in every area except where it deals with future events, prophecy, and the nation of Israel. There we use a different method of interpreting the Bible. We drop the historical grammatical method and we develop now uh, a, a different method called the allegorical method. So that therefore, when you read, even in the Old Testament, the word Israel, they say that's not the nation of Israel, that's the church. That's the church. So they use a double hermeneutic, a double method of interpreting the Bible. And so once you do that, you've lost your anchor on being able to interpret the Bible accurately, Bible accurately. And so, again, they, they use this particularly with the nation of Israel and say, well, when you read the name Israel in the Bible, that's not referring to the ethnic nation people that were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's referring to the church. So that's how they can get the church in the Old Testament. And I don't know what uh, editions of the Bible you've had and everything, but if you look at some of the, uh, where there's a break in the text, and those who are going to publish this Bible put in some headlines on that. Uh, they indicate that there's a change here now, a change in, in the break here, and that uh, and that's why they can say that this is not the nation of Israel. This is the church. And so the church has been here uh, throughout most of, of Old Testament history. Um, one other problem with it, and with this we'll have to shift gears, because covenant theology believes that the ultimate goal of history is the redemption of elect human beings, because they believe that's the ultimate goal of history, then most of, it, of those who are covenant theologians say there's no need for a 1,000-year political reign of Jesus Christ upon planet Earth. And therefore, most covenant theologians deny a literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth for the last millennium of world history. And they have adopted what is called amillennialism, the majority of them. A, like in the, the word atheist, means atheist means no God, A, no, and theist God. Amillennialism, no millennium. No 1,000-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth. And therefore, what they say is the kingdom of God's already here. It was established by Jesus in his first coming. But it's not an earthly political uh, kingdom that God foretold through the Old Testament prophets and that Jesus talked about. It is a spiritual kingdom. It's either the church, the, the new form of the church, the New Testament church here in the world today, or the rule of God inside of human hearts. That's the future kingdom of God that was foretold by God through the prophets, not a literal 1,000-year reign of his son Jesus Christ over planet Earth for the last 1,000 years of its history. So these are, and we had to go through these very quickly, but these are some of the real problems with the whole concept of covenant theology.